We're continuing on in our sermon series, The Gospel of God, our study in the book of Romans. We're in chapter 3. We'll be beginning in verse 21 this morning. It's page 941 if you're using a pew Bible, or you can follow along on the screen behind me as well. Chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Last week we made the statement, I actually quoted scripture, that says all scripture is profitable and then made the statement that some is more profitable and talked about this text. This is one of those texts that is more profitable. In fact, I would say in many ways most profitable. Um, This particular six or seven verses we're going to read several times because we're going to stay in this text for a while and unpack this text. But I would say in my own experience that opening up how the Bible is one story, we say that often for me in my life of faith after I came, became a Christian, understanding that the Old Testament and New Testament is one story. It's really one book, not two books. It's one story about how God redeems a people. This would be one of the key texts, and I'm not going to unpack this right now, but it's words like this. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Texts like that just, just burst upon the fact that it is one story from beginning to end and help us to put it together and see it as one story. So I hope, I hope that, that you will hang with us here as we walk through these texts and hear these texts, hear this text this morning. And the question I asked you last week was, um, do you hear the but now at the close? Do you hear the but now? That's, that's how it all begins in verse 21. But now, do you hear that? How do you hear that? What effect does it have on your life? Does it jar you as you hear it? And I hope, if not, it will before we're done. The reason for Romans chapter 1 and verse 18 and through 320, which we took a long time getting through and and just slogged through that text, the reason for that, primarily... For Paul was so that you'd hear the but now. So you would hear the distinct but now that comes at the conclusion of that text. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his commentary on Romans, makes this statement. He says it, listen. No man can be a Christian. No man or woman can be a Christian without realizing his utter hopelessness. It is of no use to talk about coming to Christ if you do not see your hopelessness and your helplessness. You cannot just come to him for help or for something else. There is but one reason for going to Christ, and that is that you realize that no flesh, no flesh can possibly be justified by the law in the sight of God. Every mouth has been stopped, and the whole world lieth guilty before God. That's how Paul ended that section, so that we would hear the but now, so that we would learn what it means. I think Paul maybe didn't say it this way, but I think he would concur with it, that we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. That every day we hear the but now of Romans. The life of the Christian is the life of the Christian. This is after we have come to Christ and been clothed in his righteousness. The life of the Christian is, is a life of perpetual repentance. And hearing the but now as we affirm the continuing presence of indwelling sin within us and, and see it. More and more, we need to hear the but now. The but now. Now, I promised last week, because we had a shortened time, that we would come back to this text again, particularly this verse, verse 21. I want to look just at verse 21 for the most part this morning. And I want to, again, again this week, talk about that but now, and then go on and just kind of break down the the words within that particular verse, verse 21. So let, let's do it again this morning and, and I hope see the richness of it. The first thing that we talked about last week, the word but, we don't spend a lot of time on it, but I made the point to you that there was a point in the midst of, of that other section of talking about our sin week after week after week that I felt like, oh God, am I getting out of balance? Am I not talking enough about the love of God? And too much about the wrath of God. That's how I thought. And, and as I said last week to you, then all of a sudden I realized, but that's how Paul did it. He didn't start with God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. He started with verse 18 that says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. That's how he began. But... Now, the but now, the but is about the love of God, though. That's where it turns. That's where he turns from saying that the wrath of God hangs over all the unrighteousness of men, but, but. And, and it changes then. It changes for us to begin to hear things like, but God shows his love for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But he did it while we were yet sinners, he did it while that wrath was hanging over us. And we need to understand that. We need to understand that God's initiative, even, even as that wrath stood over us, and he would have been absolutely just and to let it fall on all men. 
and to redeem none. He would not have been unjust in that. We must understand that. Even when, even when, we were under wrath, he died. He died for us. There's nothing in us that prompted that. That's the other thing we need to understand. There's there's nothing in us that prompted him to do what he did except the wrath of God over us, which we justly should have had to endure, all of us. I mean, that's the situation we were in. Nothing in us caused him to die. It happened before, before, He moved toward us. Who's the us? Who's the us? It says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Who's the us? All who believe. All who believe that he died for them. Faith is a gift that God plants within the heart of us, of believers, of the righteous. And that's who he died for. That's who he died for, those who will believe. That's whom he bore the punishment of sin. That's for those who he bore the wrath of God for, is what it's talking about in the us. So, but, that's the but. We shift from wrath to hope, wrath to love. And then it says, but now, and last week we spoke about that, the uniqueness of Christianity. It is unique among all religions. It is, it is a teaching in, in the sense that we're teaching this morning but we're teaching about the significance of an event that happened in space and time 2,000 years ago in the Holy Land. There was one who was born and lived and died and rose from the dead. That's all of what we teach is about that. That's the story. And that was the story that changed everything. It is the it is the moment in history that helps us to understand all the history of all time, that event. But now, now, something had just occurred to the Apostle Paul. Now, in recent days it had occurred. It affected his life, and he was declaring it. And what happened was regarding the righteousness of God. It says, but now the righteousness of God. What does he mean by that? We'll talk more about it. We'll unpack it more as we walk through Romans. That's what the rest of Romans is up until you get to chapter 12, talking about really that righteousness that has now come because of a historical event that happened in history in space and time. It's been revealed It's not primarily, as we talked before we moved into that lengthy section on sin, when we looked at the theme in Romans 1, 16 and 17, when we looked at the theme of Romans, which declared to us these words, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God. Again, he comes back to that same subject, the righteousness of God is revealed. What is it? Remember what we talked about then? You can go back and look at it or listen to it on the webpage. 
But we said, first of all, that it is not primarily the righteousness by which God is righteous. You remember why we said it's not that? Because Paul wouldn't be heralding that. That was not good news. To really understand if it were that, the righteousness by which God is righteous, all that does is leave us wanting and in need. We see our sin. So it is not primarily that, but it is something more than that. And it is, it is the righteousness Jesus accomplished. The righteousness that Jesus accomplished in his birth, life, death, burial, and resurrection in that event. It's what that event accomplished and revealed as a possibility for all men. Theologians would, would uh, talk about it as that Jesus was confirmed in righteousness. In other words, if you go back to the garden, the first Adam, Adam was not confirmed in righteousness. In other words, he sinned. And the potential, if he would have not sinned, he would have been confirmed in righteousness and righteousness would have been imputed to the human race. But rather he wasn't, he failed. The first Adam failed. Jesus is the second Adam. And I want to know that I don't just pull that out of the air, we're gonna come to it. Listen to what it says in Romans chapter five. You said, one of the things I said to you is that Paul's gonna unpack this righteousness This is one of the ways he does it in verse 18 of chapter 5. And in that portion, a couple of verses or a couple of uh, paragraphs before the verse 18, he's talking about the first Adam and the second Adam. The first Adam is Adam. The second Adam is Christ. But here's what he says about that whole idea of Christ being confirmed in righteousness. It says, therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, What trespass? The trespass of Adam in the garden who failed, who wasn't confirmed in righteousness. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, what's that? That's the fact that Jesus was confirmed in righteousness. One act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, So by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Adam failed. He wasn't confirmed in righteousness, all righteousness. He didn't fulfill all righteousness. He failed. The second Adam comes, Christ, and he does succeed in fulfilling all the righteous requirements of the law. That's what that text is talking about there. And therefore, there's a free gift of righteousness that is available from him. It's an alien righteousness. It's not a righteousness, as we said in my Sunday class, that resides in me. It's a righteousness that resides in him. It's what he accomplished. It's, it can be imputed to me It can be given, that's what imputation means. Just as Adam's sin was imputed to us, 
and we all sinned in Adam, so in Christ we can all be made righteous. His righteousness can be imputed to us. That's the truth of what Romans chapter 5 will talk to us. In other words, the perfection of Christ, in simple terms, the perfection of Christ, the perfection that he accomplished, being confirmed in all righteousness without sin, can be credited to us. It's what we will read about and talk about in Romans chapter 4 and verse 3, where it says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. In other words, the righteousness of Christ can be counted to us, can be put on our account, if you will, so that we are righteous by his righteousness. That's the glory of the gospel. The righteous of another became the righteousness of Abraham and can for us. It's why if you have a New International Version, I don't know if you do, we use the revised version here. For the most part, that's what you'll find in the fuse. But if you have a New International Version this morning, look at it. And what it will say to you is not, not the righteousness of God, but the righteousness from God because of all that I've just said to you. The righteousness from God. It comes from him, accomplished in Christ. And then the scripture goes on to say that all of this has been manifest. All of this has been manifested apart from the law. But let's, the idea of it's been made manifest. In other words, it's, it's here now. Just like the now, it's here. What's been manifest? What's been manifest? What was hidden a bit before? What was in shadows, in types in the Old Testament? And that's a lot of what the Old Testament is. It's, it's pictures, it's shadows and types. And all of that now has been made clear. That's really what the text is saying. It's all become clear in this day. And Paul knew well all of his Old Testament. He knew it as well as any man. And he realized how now it's become clear. There were hints in the past, lots of hints. And oh, how Paul must have marveled when he first, first was encountered by Christ on that Damascus Road and, and came to Christ and began to be taught and began to see how all of those hints and shadows were now a reality in Christ. There are lots of them in the text. It's why in verse 21 of what we just read, it says, the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The law and the prophets bear witness to it. They bear witness to what has now been manifest. Just some examples of that. Remember in Genesis, the early pages of Genesis. Remember the curse? Satan, Satan, you shall bruise his heel. And oh, did he? Christ was crucified, but he shall crush your head. Who wins? Certainly not Satan. In fact, the scripture says all that Satan did was plan so that Christ might win and win and accomplish a righteousness for us. And then you go to Abraham a little later in the book of Genesis and you read in the book of Abraham that all of the peoples of the earth is the promise that God gives to Abraham will be blessed 
through Abraham. And then you read a little farther into chapter 22 and you realize they're going to be blessed through his offspring. In your offspring shall all the nations be blessed. That's Genesis. And then, and then here's how it must have been for Paul. Now Paul in Galatians, he's writing. In Galatians chapter 3, the New Testament, verse 8, he says, and, and quotes that text, in you shall all the nations be blessed. And then Paul gives commentary as you go a little farther into Galatians chapter 15 and 16, or verses 15 and 16, and he says this, promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring in Genesis, but it does not say offsprings. That's what Paul goes on to say. In other words, it, it is not plural. Promises were made to Abraham and his offspring singular in in Galatians. It does not say, and to his offsprings, and then Paul goes on referring to many, but referring to one. And then a little later he writes, and to your offspring who is Christ. All the nations shall be blessed through your offspring, Paul sees. And who is the one who brings that blessing of a righteousness from God that's been made manifest? It's Christ. It's Christ. It's accomplishing all righteousness for us. And then you go to Isaiah 53, and you read things like this. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took our iniquities and carried our sorrows, yet he was considered stricken by God and smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all, us, us who see and believe and trust the righteousness he accomplished. You could go to the law and all of the sacrifices. What were the sacrifices about? They were a picture pointing to a final sacrifice, which it says in Hebrews, by one sacrifice we are made perfect forever by the perfection of Christ, by what he gives us, even as we're being made perfect. So again, it was manifest. Paul was saying it's, it's, it's here now, manifest in Christ among us. Before shadows and types, now it's here. And then he goes on to say in the text, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Apart from the law, what, what does he mean, apart from the law? Apart from the Ten Commandments, apart from the moral law, I think it, he's pertaining to the moral law, apart from the law. In what way? Does that mean the law doesn't matter anymore? Does that mean at one time the law saved, now Christ saves? What, what is all that about? I don't think it means that because if you follow down, if you've got your Bible, go to verse 31 of that chapter and it says, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? 
By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So he's not saying the law isn't important. He doesn't say the law doesn't continue to have its function. But I do think he is saying, apart from the law, because he is. And so what does it mean? Here's what I think it means. That attempting to keep the law perfectly as a means of our salvation has been entirely set aside. Attempting to keep the law perfectly as a means of our salvation has been entirely set aside. Not because the law has no more application. It has huge application. But because another, because another, this is the gospel, because another has accomplished this perfect obedience to the law on our behalf. We no longer have to satisfy its demands to escape being judged by the law, but rather have another who has satisfied its demands for us. So no judgment now pertains to us. Wrath no longer is against those who are righteous in Christ, who have trusted the righteousness of Christ. Another writes these words. He says, the law of God is still there and it still is the means of judgment. And there will be thousands upon thousands of people who will be judged by the law. But let me start over. The law of God is still there, and it is still the means of judgment. And there is no conceivable standing in the presence of God without a righteousness which answers the demands of the law and satisfies it and conforms to it. In other words, those who will be judged by the law and be held guilty according to the law are those who have not been able to have a way to satisfy the demands of that law. And if they've attempted to do it in their own strength, in their own ability, in the arm of the flesh, by any means, they will stand and bear the wrath and judgment of God. The law has a purpose, but for the Christian, our means of satisfying the demands of that law are all in Christ. He is the satisfaction of the law for us. That's what it means to be a Christian, to believe that he has satisfied the demands of what stands in judgment over us. But now, but now, another has satisfied the demands of all who believe. And we go back to what we began with as we started this series, and we said it a lot of times, and we'll continue to say it, but the gospel is about the fact that what God demands Satisfaction of the law, what God demands. And satisfaction of the law comes if we try to do it in our own flesh by doing it perfectly. And we've read, you can't. It's futile to do that, but people still attempt to think there's a way to do that. But what God demands, he provides. Perfect righteousness. Perfect satisfaction of the law. And it's in Christ. And so it brings us now to a conclusion.
this all does. It goes back again. It goes back again. It's how do you hear but now? How do you hear it? Are they for you what they were for Paul? Incredible words. It, it, it turned Paul's life upside down. And the amazing thing about that story is Paul wasn't looking for it in one sense. In fact, he was pushing against it. He was, he was resisting it. And how was he resisting it? He was still in the mode to think that there was a way he could somehow, in his own flesh, satisfy the demands of the law. He stood at Stephen's grave and gave consent to his martyrdom because he believed with all of his heart that he could satisfy the demands of the law. He was a Pharisee among Pharisees. And as we read last week, and we've read a number of times, he counted it all as loss or dung compared to the surpassing, surpassing glory. He didn't say it this way of the but now. Paul's eyes had been opened to see the fallacy of thinking that you could satisfy the demands of the law in himself. All men have to come there. All men have to, have to come there if they're going to look for a righteousness somewhere else. They have to give up thinking they can satisfy it and turn to another. They have to be desperate in that sense. And if you're here this morning and, and you have come to see that, thank God for that. Glory in that. There is nothing, there is nothing that is more merciful that God can do than to open your eyes to see that. It is amazing to me that one man sees, one man sees and another doesn't. They see the same evidence. They see the same story. They look at the same event in history and one sees glory in it and another doesn't. As I close this morning, let me, let me share another quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. The worship team's going to come and we're going to sing together in just a moment. But as they're coming, listen to this quote. Lloyd-Jones suggests there's a way to know whether you're a Christian or not. This is one of the ways to know that. There are other ways to know that. But this is, this is one of the ways he would suggest that would help you to know if you're a Christian. And here's what he writes. When the devil attacks you and suggests that you're not a Christian and that you have never been a Christian because of what is still in your heart or because of what you are still doing or because of something you once did, when he comes and thus accuses you, what do you say to him? Do you agree with him? Or do you say to him, yes, Yes, that was true. Yes, that sin was my sin. That's really what he's saying. You agree. You agree, yes. It was all that Satan would want to say it is. 
But you don't stop there. You say, but now. But now. You, you hear a but now. Do you hold up these words against him? Or when perhaps you feel condemned as you read the scriptures, as you read the law in the Old Testament, as you read the Sermon on the Mount, and as you feel that you are undone, do you remain lying on the ground in hopelessness? Or do you lift up your head and say what? But now. This is the essence of the Christian position. This is how faith answers the accusations of the law, the accusations of the conscience, and everything that else that would condemn and depress us. These are indeed very wonderful words, and it is most important that we should lay hold of them and realize their tremendous importance and their real significance. I'm going to keep asking you. Do you hear the but now? Do you hear it? Do you hear it? Do you glory in it? Do you see it as the treasure that it is? Do you see the fallacy of trying in any shape or form to satisfy the demands of the law in the flesh? And you look away from that futility to one who did satisfy the demands, who did it perfectly. A righteousness from God is now manifest among us apart from the law to which the law and the prophets testify. Let's stand and sing. I am a sinner your blameless Lord My sins against you Can't be ignored They will be punished I know they must Your law demands it For you are just You would count Everything that I've done wrong Who could stand But there's forgiveness with you, God Have mercy on me Have mercy on me A broken and a contrite heart You won't turn away Have mercy on me, have mercy on me, because of your steadfast love. Father, You gave your son To make atonement For the wrongs I have done What do you require? Jesus fulfilled I don't deserve it And I never will 
out of Psalm 51 where David has grievously sinned and he just says God have mercy on me and God had somehow planted faith within the heart of David to know that God would he trusted him to have mercy not to count his sin against him that was types and shadows back there We live on this side of the cross. We don't have to have types and shadows. We can know things that cause us to be able to sing what you just did. What you, God the Father, what you, God the Father, required, Jesus, God the Son, fulfilled. Sounds a lot like what you require of us, God, you provide. And that's exactly what the gospel is about. Let's pray. Father, it is an amazing thing to realize that you call us righteous people if we're in Christ because we are based on the righteousness of Christ, on the fact that he satisfied all the demands of the law for us. Oh Lord, I pray that that we just keep hearing the words, but now. And if we're still having difficulty hearing them, that we won't quit listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Go 